Welcome to the final episode of the final series of this particular kind of podcast. We are going to have another episode after this, and actually we'll probably have another one after that even. Uh, that one will be different. It's more of going to be an introduction. It's more so going to be an introduction to something new than it is going to be a continuation of something old. But this is a continuation of something old right now. This is the final one, the final part of the History of Literature series. And then we move to speeches and miscellaneous stuff. Basically, whatever I can think of for that week will end up being what the episode is. That's not necessarily true. Um, The essays, so might as well just introduce it a little bit. Um, I'll be introducing it in the next two episodes as well. But I think it's kind of cool that we just introduce it as much as possible. It takes a lot longer to write a good essay than it does a repetition of something you already read. In these podcast episodes, the ones that you guys have been listening to since early October, actually really late September of 2020, they were merely repetitious. Basically, I didn't I didn't copy and paste anything. I never plagiarized, but I always read something and wrote it back down. I never thought for myself necessarily. I wanted to learn. The goal was to get information um from that first year. That was the whole point of the podcast in the first place was to gain insight. It was not necessarily to spread my own ideas. It was to gain insight, to learn new things. Um, I found that in most situations, I did not have the necessary prerequisites, especially with quantum mechanics. I didn't even take chemistry yet. Now I've taken chemistry and all that stuff is pretty easy. (laughs) Take chemistry first. Um, But... Still, the goal was to get information, and information I got, but I do want to spread my own ideas, and writing, I've said this many times to many people who know me, writing is my favorite hobby. It is my very favorite hobby. Even when I'm doing astronomy, I'm thinking of things that I should write. Every moment of my life, I'm thinking of new things to write. I'm not joking. I love to write. It's my favorite thing to do. I I miss reading to write. I miss school to write. I miss my study halls to write. I bring a second laptop to school, which first of all, you're not even supposed to do. And I turn on my offline account and start my essays. But The issue with those essays is that they take much longer because there are your own thoughts and your own thoughts. It's much easier to copy someone else's thoughts than it is to create your own. And I found that the essays generally take around three weeks to make. That is long. They're, they're, they're similar in length to these podcast episodes, actually some of them. It, d- it depends. It depends. I- I'm trying to keep it lower. I would like to have 1,500 word ones. Um, but in my first two, I really was running about 3,000. So 
anything can happen, but I'm thinking that I would like to stay at around 1500 and that's what we've been working at so far. My first two or 3,000, uh, one of them I'm actually not going to post, I just kind of wrote it, um, but the other two I will. Uh, one of them was 3,000, the other one was 1500 but they take a long time. Uh, I remember spending evenings working on them for two or three hours, and then I'd go back the next evening, and yet it would still take me two and a half to three weeks. And remember, I'm treating these like a speech. They're not going to be, I'm not going to treat them like I'm reading, because I read off a document here. I'm not going to be reading off a document in those. I'm going to be preparing. Um, there were two, I, I, I initially planned on there being at least two, if not three, almost sections to this podcast. So you could basically say that these 64 episodes um, of the podcast were season one. And now we're going to season two. Season two is going to be different, but similar. I'm still actually kind of crafting it because I'm not completely sure what I'm going to do yet. But yeah, <laughs> that's basically what's going to happen. Um, we're going to have essays and I'm going to treat them like speeches. They're the whole point of this second section is to not only think for myself entirely, I don't use any sources at all. This is m almost entirely philosophical. Um, and also, uh, to improve my oratory, because I'm just reading off a document here, I, I need to be really connecting with my speeches. So, yeah. But anyway, into this episode, because I'm sure that's what you clicked on for. That's what you clicked for. <laughs> Seriously. Early modern literature refers to the literature produced in the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, this period succeeded from both medieval and renaissance literature, obviously. Um, this culture, early modern culture, existed from 1550 to 1750, encompassing both the Baroque period um, and ending with the Age of Enlightenment. So, both the Baroque period and... Yeah, no, really just the Baroque period and ending with the Age of Enlightenment. Um, by definition, some Renaissance authors from the 16th century are also considered early modern um, ones, though they will not group with early modern literature's composers. Uh, some of the authors of both the Renaissance and early modern literature included William Shakespeare, Christopher Marlowe, and Miguel de Cervantes. The early modern period will include some 18th century literature, though the section on the episode guide claims that this section covers only 16th and 17th century literature, um, but we are going to include, for example, uh, Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe and Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. Um, this Europe, this early modern Europe, was directly responsible for most modern literature and philosophy, Specifically, the Mott novel, which began with Miguel de Cervantes' Don Quixote, which is technically a Renaissance um, book, but it also came out in the 17th century. It, I have that correct. No, 16th century. 16th. Or no, it was 17th century. Yeah, 17th. It came out in the 17th century. Technically, early modern Europe. It is early modern Europe. Um, but it was also Renaissance era, so we grouped it with Renaissance. Um, this section covers the essence of a beautiful era that, for some reason, does not experience the fame and recognition of the Renaissance or classical antiquity, and it's because of art, not because of writing. Um, the discovery, quote-unquote, of the New World, again, quote-unquote, in 1492, 
quote unquote, not that's not quote unquote, inspired a new essence of science and philosophy. Uh, resulting from European colonization and the Renaissance, the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries prospered a new age of philosophy. Um, many philosophers from the Baroque period, including the instantly recognizable names of John Locke, um, Hobbes, let's just, let's just say last names instead because it would be, <laughs> there are a lot of them, <laughs> uh, Hobbes, um, Descartes, Rene Descartes, oh, that one always fools me, it's Descartes, um, I may butcher this, he's Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, or Leibniz, again, I know calcul. I know he was one of the co-inventors of calculus. That's, I, I I know him. I just don't know how to say his name. Uh, Newton, Bacon, Galileo, Huygens, Kepler, among others, and they formed an age now known to us as the scientific revolution. Um, plays meant to entertain and not enlighten returned to Europe during this period, um, with Commedia dell'arte. Uh, Del Arte, or whatever, an Italian play genre that translates to comedy of the profession, and Shakespeare's use of jesters. Um, the comedy was a popular mode of entertainment in the period. Uh, the era, era also saw the rise of the opera, a play in which the performers are singers, um, with Daphne, Daphne I, I'm pretty sure it's Daphne, um, an opera that first appeared in France in 1598. Um, there are... <laughs> A lot of notable works. Typical. Um, one example is Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. It was an epic poem published in 1590 that had 36,000 lines. Um, he actually wrote it for Queen Elizabeth, uh, though it is unknown whether she read it or not. Um, Gargantua and Pantagruel is another one. Um, it's a set of five novels that tells the endeavors of the giant Gargantua, Gargantua, yeah, that makes sense, and his son, Pantagruel. Um, it was Francois Rabelais. Um, he was a French writer of the 16th century. Uh, he was the one who published Gargantua and Pantagruel. Um, there are five novels, so remember that these novels were published at separate times, though they're within the same binding. Um, he published in the first one in 1532, next in 1534, uh, and etc. 1546, 1552, and 1564. So it was a 33-year-long process, basically. Actually, it was more than that because it probably took him a few years to create um, the one he released in, in 1532. So it was probably more like 36 years. So that's a long time to write one novel. Um, Francois's writing style has been compared to that of James Joyce, um, the prolifically confusing novelist who wrote many of the things that I want to read but can't. Finnegan's Wake and Ulysses. They're, they're, I've, I've went to the library and looked at them and not understood what I was reading. <laughs> That's how difficult they are. I mean, and I'm a good reader. Like, I'm a good... I'm a, I am a very good reader. I, I don't mean to brag, but, like, I read at least... I've been reading five, five years above my grade level for my entire life. Um, still doesn't mean anything because <laughs> I still can't read Joyce. <laughs> and if I were to try to read Gargantua and Pantagruel and, uh, Mr. Francois over here has, uh, the same writing style or similar writing style, um, to James Joyce, 
maybe I won't be able to read that one either. Especially considering it was written in the 16th century. Maybe I won't be able to read it. Uh, but yeah. That, again, James Joyce. I love James Joyce, but he's also James Joyce. Uh, the 95 Theses were had to be in, included. I mean, it was technically a Renaissance thing. Um, but it is early modern literature still because, again, 95 Theses were written... Were, written in the 16th century um these this these theses you could say um were was credited were credited with the birth of protestantism uh, the religion that is now the second largest branch of christianity um europe did not receive the 95 theses well obviously um, following the release of these of the work, um, Johann Tetzel, a German friar and preacher, immediately demanded that Martin Luther be executed for heresy, and I'm sure he was not the only one. Um, his demands were left unfulfilled, and Martin Luther would continue to publish literature that soon spawned the Protestant Reformation and later the Thirty Years' War. Uh, one of probably the worst religious war of all time, though you could technically... No, I wouldn't go as far as to argue that. No, definitely not. Um, there are some really, there are some really high standards to defining um, a religious war. I would not go as far as to say World War II was a religious war. It was, in a way, it was a war of religion, but it was not a religious war, if that makes any sense. There can be a war that includes issues with religion, but is it the main issue? It was not the main issue. <laughs> not the main issue. The main issue was definitely not religion. Um, yeah. Another one is Dr. Faustus. Not Dr. Fauci. That's a joke. But not Dr. Fauci. This is a different book. Um, it's an Elizabethan, or Elizabethan, or however they want to say it, tragedy. Many of Shakespeare's tragedy are of this genre. Depicting the history and life, of the life and death of Dr. Faustus. I loved this play. I, I read it, I actually read it um, right after I wrote this. Um, I got it from the library. It's really, really strong, really strong work. Um, the protagonist, Faust, uh, was a legendary character in German legend. Wow, legendary and legend. Um, he was a highly successful yet despondent man uh, whose dissatisfaction led him to conspire with the devil. Um, his conspiracy exchanges his soul uh, for omniscience and unlimited worldly pleasures. Um, it was written between 1589 and, nine, and 1592 by Christopher Marlowe, um, and you probably need the annotations to read it, unless you know Latin. There, there's a fair amount of Latin in that, in that play, if you read the untranslated version, the original version. There is a fair amount of Latin. During this time, there's also an explosion of philosophy specifically political philosophy um this this one's an interesting one you, you know the age of enlightenment this was generally an era in which people promoted first of all reason um but also democratic ideals um i, I like to think of the big three i it's my own big three you think of john locke uh, montesquieu and um jean jacques rousseau jean jacket rousseau as i call him all of them promoted democratic ideals in some form. Specifically, John Locke was the most well-known because he promoted natural rights. Um, and we use the natural rights in the Constitution and in 
Declaration of Independence. Actually, in the 14th Amendment, you life, liberty, and property is directly indicated, directly quoted in the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And if you know government well, you know what I'm talking about when I talk about the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment was probably one of the most important amendments ever put on the Constitution because it's been used for everything. It's been used for everything. Um, it's got two really important... Anyway, it's just, it's basically, it's been used to apply the Bill of Rights to states, it's been used to grant civil equality, um, civil rights to other people, uh, to disadvantaged groups, etc. Um, Leviathan, so we have to get to the philosophy part. Leviathan is Thomas Hobbes' most influential work. Um, unlike his political successors, Thomas Hobbes' political philosophical successors, um, the Leviathan actually appeals against a limited government and for a strong central government, so a unitary government in a way. Um, he argued that only a strong government with an absolute sovereign could avoid a brute situation of a state of nature, known as bellum omnium contra omnes, or basically the Latin phrase for the war of all against all. Um, that actually does make sense in a certain to a certain extent, uh, I think of the Roman Republic when they had wartime. Um, they'd actually have people who would just take over the empire to run it by themselves um, for, I think it was a six-month period. Don't quote me on that. Um, so that there wouldn't be any discord in the government. And we see that today. I mean, <laughs> we have hyper-pluralism. We can't get anything done. Imagine if we were getting invaded and we couldn't get anything done. That's a bad thing. So, he actually has a decent argument there. Um, the second treatise of government was perhaps the antithesis to Hobbes' Leviathan. Um, he was, this was the one that advocated um, natural rights, basically limited government, etc. Basically all that stuff. Um, Principia, which is Newton's most encompassing work, probably his most impressive work, and probably the most encompassing work of the scientific revolution, um, was Isaac Newton's, basically, philosophical treatise on all things science. <laughs> it, it went further than that. Um, it, it had an unparalleled impact on scientific thought, um, and it was easily his most famous uh, treatise. It, it expounded his laws of motion and the universal law of gravitation, um, and of course he wrote it in Latin. That's why I want to learn how to read Latin. Um, Discord on the Method is Rene Descartes' uh, principal treatise on philosophy. Um, it, it basically tackles skepticism, a topic studied by many philosophers yet understood by few somehow. Um, it also receives immense fame for the famous phrase, and oh, you know it. Uh, I think it, it, it'd be... I, I don't want to say it in French because I, I'm, going to, I'm going to butcher it. Um, but basically, it translates to, I think, therefore, I am. You've heard it. Um, other really important ones that we elaborated earlier included um, Robinson Crusoe. It's actually a book I have to read still because of a background knowledge reading list my cousin gave me, along with Gulliver's, Gulliver, Gulliver's Travels. Both of them are. Um, they're both pretty early 
pretty early age literature, so I'm not necessarily going to be reading something that's at my reading level, but it's pretty important. Um, modern literature, specifically late 19th and early 20th century literature, is the most prolific period of language. Um, before the amateur literary critics among us object to my position, let us examine the thesis that I posit. Um, if not already obvious, my thesis claims that modern literature is preeminence, uh, that it is preeminent to um, prior eras. Uh, for example, I, I honestly personally think that the 19th century was the best century for literature uh, because we were in this gap. This was like a gap time. You didn't quite have computers yet. Um, actually, even the early 20th century was decent, but this the one thing was you had radios by then. Um, I say that the 19th century was the best for literature, for specifically written-down works, particularly because you had growing, burgeoning literature rates, to say the least, Um you had growing literacy rates, especially in the United States, the United Kingdom, etc., um, in Europe. Uh, and you also had this really large body of writers. Um, and not to mention, the Industrial Revolution had many created many improvements in transportation. So basically, any information, particularly information like a letter... Um, or like a newspaper, it could be disseminated everywhere, not just to this one part of London. It could go everywhere, um, and that was a huge. That made a huge miles of a difference. Um, literally, my, they made miles of differences. Another thing, um, you had lit, you had literacy rates going up because uh, quality of life was improving. There was more op there were more options for people to get out of agriculture because we had um, that was when we had our second agricultural revolution. Um, we had more people moving to cities, so the access to education was stronger, um, and thus of course liter uh, literacy rates rose. And when literacy rates rise, there is a higher demand uh, for written work generally, um, especially then there was. Um, so you had that, um, and that combined with people wanting to earn money, especially prolific liter, uh, prolific novelists, prolific writers, prolific, prolific essayists. Um, and if they wanted to make money, there are a bunch of people that want to read books and that want to read things. So basically it was kind of like the perfect storm. Literature was basically Amazon, um, in the 19th century. <laughs> it was basically Amazon in the 19th century. It just kept making money. It just kept exploding, basically. Or, like, you could just say online retail in general. Or even just technology. That's basically how I think of it. Not very scripted, but it's basically how I think of it. Um, but we're not even going to the 19th century yet. I'm just saying 19th century. My favorite literature. Um, but also, in my opinion, the best time for literature. The 18th century holds the spotlight in the transition from early modern literature to modern literature. Uh, the most revolutionary movement in the 18th century, the Enlightenment of course, was a revolution in reason and freedom of thought. It established new systems of philosophy and new, more reasonable religions. I mean, it laid claim to the recognizable philosophers of Kant, Voltaire, Rousseau, uh, Lessing, Montesquieu, Smith, 
among many, many others. Um, um, the end of the 18th century saw the genesis of Romantic era literature, a literary style that would extend to the poems of Edgar Allan Poe, uh, Johann uh, Wolfgang von Goethe, and the novels of Emily Bronte. Bronte. Um, Enlightenment Europe characterized an explosion of philosophy, uh, so the notable, the only notable literary works from the 18th century will be works of philosophy. Um, there is almost no fiction except for Gulliver's Travels and Robinson Crusoe. I mean, there was, there was a lot of it, but I look at the 18th century as a more philosophical time, so I wanted to emphasize it more. And of course, we have limited time. Um... I think of Voltaire as a good example. Voltaire is one of the best, one of the greatest, most profoundest philosophers of the 18th century. Um, for example, he wrote Candide. I've read Candide. It's a really wacky, wacky, wacky satire. Just read it. it. I'm not even going to explain it. I'm not even going to elaborate on it or elucidate it or explicate or expound it. I don't care. I'm not going to elaborate on it. Just read it for yourself, because then you get to experience the weirdness that is Voltaire. Um, he also wrote Micro Megas, which is a science a science fiction book, but it, it's it's philosophical, but less so than Candide. Um, Immanuel Kant was a German philosopher whose name stands with Rousseau, Montesquieu, and Voltaire as the premier philosophers of Enlightenment Europe. Um, his major works include Critique of Pure Reason, Prolegomena, I don't know if I'm saying that right, I'm definitely not, uh, Groundwork of the Metaphysics of Morals, and Critique of Judgment. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, or Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, was perhaps the most influential figure in the Enlightenment, for his philosophy influenced the Enlightenment, the American Revolution, and the French Revolution. Um, his Discourse on Inequality and the Social Contract are two books the site I'm using as a reference calls and I quote, cornerstones in modern political and social thought, end quote. Um, Montesquieu is the third philosopher among what my AP US government teacher refers to as the big three European philosophers. They were Rousseau, Locke, and Montesquieu. Uh, Montesquieu's most influential philosophy to the United States was the separation of powers um, position, essentially, proposition. Um, basically, you divide power into separate branches such that each part of the government must share power or must have a specific um, type of power. Um, and James Madison well extended it to make them kind of interlacing one another so that they can kind of check and balance one another. Checks and balances. Um, so basically the governments were somewhat separated but not completely distinct. Um, in a philosophical complex overrun by men, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft is an outlier. Uh, she was an English writer and philosopher who advocated for women's rights. Um, her work, such as A Vindication of the Rights of Women, cemented her as one of, the f one of feminist philosophy's founding mothers. Um, her second daughter was actually Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein. Um, 
Adam Smith was an 18th century Scottish philosopher whose works, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, and An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations, you also can just basically call it the Wealth of Nations, uh, granted Smith the nicknames the Father of Capitalism and the Father of Economics. Um, his magnum opus, of course, The Wealth of Nations, is often considered the first work of modern economics. And, like I said, Wikipedia agrees with me on the 19th century. 19th century literature is more abundant than all other centuries' literature. If Wikipedia agrees with me, then that means I'm, I have a better chance of being right. Not, not necessarily mean that I am right, but I have a better chance. Um, there you go. <laughs> I mean, that just, I guess that tells you something. Um, the first half of the 19th century saw the immensely popular romantic movement and the rise of America's most prolific and widely renowned authors. Um, it peaked in the first half of the 19th century uh, when Goethe, Sir Walter Scott, Amelia Opie, um, Opie or whatever, uh, Thomas More, Percy Shelley, Mary Shelley, and Jane Austen were extremely popular authors. peaked when they were so. Uh, many of the authors featured in the 19th century notable works section were born from 1800 to 1849. Um, several of these uh, include Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, Edgar Allan Poe, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Henry David Thoreau, Civil Disobedience, um, Herman Melville, Emily Dickinson, Mark Twain, and others. Um, there's also a lot of 19th century philosophy. I, I, I'm just going to name off the philosophers because you already know them, most likely. Karl Marx, Communism, Socialism, that Communist Manifesto, etc. Um, and Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, he was a... He was an anti-anti-Semitic. He was, um... He was, a Interesting person. Um, definitely interesting person. He, he was... He was the one who came up with the phrase, who coined the phrase, God is dead, an expression claiming that the Age of Enlightenment confirmed God's non-existence. So he was one of the first, um open atheists that really was what arose in 19th century in the 19th century um you know, charles charles darwin was definitely not an atheist but i like to think of leo tolstoy for a long time not forever he was when he was younger he was religious um for a while he was not for a while he was atheist uh, but then he came back um dostoevsky dostoevsky i'm pretty sure he was also atheist um, a lot of the writers started getting into this. They, they became a little bit more open with their atheism. Um, scientists, the same thing happened. That was generally, you had to have to wait till the 20th century for that. Um, but yeah, basically, atheism became a little bit more accepted, still very not accepted. I mean, even in countries now, you can be executed for being an atheist. But it is, generally, they were they were more accepted. In modern society or in that society um, other notable writers uh, included Charles Dickens Charles Dickens everyone knows Charles Dickens he wrote Great Expectations Tale of Two Cities A Christmas Carol Oliver Twist David Copperfield Hard Times the list just goes on and on and I'm sure he made a good amount of money and a lot and definitely made people like plum pudding a lot more that, that's an inside joke based upon a, an article I read a few months ago um, all of his, I love his work. He is one of my favorite authors. He, he was an, he is an incredible author. Um, he's very hard to read for someone who is a 
teenager, younger teenager. Uh, but once you get used to his writing style, you'll find that it's actually pretty easy to read, not not difficult. And he's truly a profound writer. Um, a lot of his th- a lot of his novels teach a really interesting lesson. They're more true literature. Um, than the more philosophical literature that I think of when I think of like Virginia Woolf, for example. Um, he's more of just pure entertainment novel. I mean, some of them are grueling. I liked Great Expectations, but I did not like Tale of Two Cities. Um, but again, all of them can have very deep representations and they're interesting in that they're different his his writing was a little bit different from um, others particularly in that it was it didn't seem as philosophical though it may have been it was more just entertainment um of course there's russian literature so you had theodor Theodor dostoevsky um and leo tolstoy um, you also had Jane Austen. Um, Jane Austen wrote Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, Mansfield Park, Northanger Abbey, etc. She was probably one of the greatest um, writers and arguably the greatest female writer of all time as well. Um, there were two eras of literature in the 20th century that dominated that century. It was modernist and postmodern literature. Uh, the two eras flowered from 1900 to 1940 and 1945 to 1980, respectively. A modernist era char- uh, literature characterized a break from traditional literary methods. Uh, the horrors of World War I created the most pronounced period of modern literature, uh, modernist literature, with influential writers like F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, and William Faulkner taking the spotlight. Um, other prominent modernist novelists included James Joyce, uh, T.S. Eliot, and Ezra Pound. Postmodern literature was prominent in the 60s and 70s in Cold War America. Uh, the style consisted of metafiction, a literary style that emphasizes itself, such that the reader is continually, continually reminded that the book is fiction, um, along with unreliable narrators. Um, I think of a 19th century example when I think of unreliable narration. Um, the unreliable narrator in Fyodor Dostoevsky's The Double calls Goliadkin a maniac who thinks he has a double. Our hero. He's not a, he's not a hero. He was a maniac. And Read the last pages of the book. <laughs> Let's just say it that way. Um, the mo- most notable postmodern novelists were Kurt Vonnegut and Thomas Pinkin. Um, dystopian fiction exploded in the 20th century. Um, some examples were like Fahrenheit 451, Brave New World, um, 1984, The Handmaid's Tale, Animal Farm, etc. Um, some of the notable authors from the period included John Steinbeck. Uh, he wrote Grapes of Wrath, Travel with Charlie, um, Of Mice and Men. Uh, the Gar- I always forget the name of that. Um, he just he wrote... A lot of incredible works. Uh, he emphasized a lot of biblical allusions. That's one reason why I found some of the things like they were just reading them again. I understood them more because I've read a good amount of the Bible now. Um, but back in the time, back in the day when I read *Grapes of Wrath*, I was kind of lost in all those allusions. I'll, I'll be honest. Um, there was also F. Scott Fitzgerald. He wrote *The Great Gatsby*, a book that I never want to read. 
there was George Orwell. He wrote 1984 and the Animal Farm. Uh, or an Animal Farm. It's not the... Uh, it was a really good book. Both of them are really good books. Uh, they ended very differently from other ones. I'm not going to give any spoilers away, but yeah, they ended a lot differently uh, from other novels. Uh, there was James Joyce. He wrote uh, uh, Ulysses, Finnegan's Wake, um, The Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, among uh, Dubliners is another example. He wrote a lot of really impressive works. Um, there was J.D. Salinger. He wrote Catcher in the Rye. Um, Ray Bradbury, he wrote Fahrenheit 451. Um, and then you also had 20th century philosophers like Christopher Hitchens. Yes, the anti-theist Christopher Hitchens. He wrote The Portable Atheist and Hitch 22. His works are masterful, though he is an iconoclast. Um, there's Bertrand Russell and, of course, Carl Sagan. Um, and then, of course, 21st century literature. I'm not actually going to say anything on this because we still have, what, 78 years left, basically? 79 years, sorry. Um, we still have 2022 through 2099. So let's just wait until 2099 and then maybe, or 2100, and then I'll post on it. Uh, but yeah, we. That's it for literature. <laughs> this is the final series on uh, the final episode of the final series in this podcast. We're only going to do essays from now on um, and other things. We'll do other things. I haven't completely... Uh, I have not completely set up everything yet. But once everything's set up, we will be doing essays and speeches either once a month or once every three weeks. I'm not sure yet. It, it depends on how long it takes me to write my essays, how what I'm looking at. Um, but... Yeah, that's basically it. So thank you all for listening, and as always, have a good morning, afternoon, evening, and night. I'll see you in the next episode, which will be the last one for this uh, season. Um, but yeah, take care and stay curious.